Okay, we have to do the offering again. We didn't pray for it. So <laughs> give it all back. We can pray now. God will understand. Father, we thank you that you are the giver of every good gift. All things difficult and all things good pass through your hands. All things redeemable in Christ. Because of what he has done for us, we have hope, we have life, we have righteousness, we have deliverance from judgment, we have joy and, and power to live out lives that are, that are for, for you and for your glory. For the sake of the gospel, Father, we have worshipped you, we have given of our finances, we are available for your work and in, in our encouraging one another and speaking your truth to one another growing in, in godliness and Christ-likeness. That's what you're always doing in us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ, calling us to him to delight ourselves in him, to follow him, to trust him, to live for him. So may that happen, Father, even further as we get into your word. Help us to grasp what your word is saying to us. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce deeply into us. But help me, Father, to make it clear. Give life to your word. In Christ we pray. Amen. We've talked about Saeed Abedini before. He's a, an American Iranian pastor, Christian pastor. In the summer of 2012, he went to Iran to do some work in an orphanage. And he was detained in the summer. And then in September of that same year, 2012, he was incarcerated. He's been in a couple different prisons. He's, he's right now in the worst prison in Iran. His wife and two young children live in Boise, and of course they pray daily for his release and for his safety and, and hope for his return. But one thing is, as you listen to what uh, his wife Nagma has to say, they, they know that, they, that Christ is with them. They know that he has not abandoned them. Few, if any of us, may end up in prison for our faith, but all of us have or will be in prison of suffering at some point or another and adversity. Being a Christian does not exempt us from adversity. In his book, If God is Good, Randy Alcorn says, people come to me all the time and say, I was attending church, I was giving my money to the poor and to missions, I, I was um, praying and reading my Bible, and then God did this to us, and I don't get it. Many of us may understand in our heads that being diligent and faithful as Christians doesn't exempt us from suffering, but in our hearts we still are surprised by adversity and suffering. We still ask why. And uh, in a letter Saeed Abedini wrote to his eight-year-old daughter for her eighth birthday just actually last month, he said, um, the answer to why is who? Who is in control? Christ, Jesus Christ is in control. And the Lord Jesus, who is in control, is with us in our adversity and suffering, just as he is in our times of prosperity when things are going good. As we continue with our series, God Meant It for Good, from the life of Joseph, from Genesis 37 to 50, we'll, um, we'll see how God was with Joseph, both in his prosperity and adversity. Now, Genesis 39, where we're going to focus today, picks up where 37 left off. And if you're halfway awake this morning, you might have noticed that we're not doing 38. There's some reasons for that. It's like heavy-duty, R-rated stuff. 
So you'll be excited to go read it now. In fact, you may choose just to read that while I'm preaching because you're so motivated now to read it. And it actually doesn't mess with the flow of the Joseph story whatsoever. It's about his brother Judah and his, his um, moral indiscretions that he made. So it's, it's in the Word of God. It's good. But we're not going to talk from 38. We're going right to 39. So what happened in 37 last week was Joseph's brothers hated him like a dog for their father Jacob's favoritism and for Joseph's dreams of ruling over his brothers, which one thing we should have learned from last week, if you have dreams that you're going to rule over your brothers, don't share it with them. Not a good idea. They hated him so much they conspired to kill him. But Judah convinced his brothers to sell him to a group of Ishmaelite, Midianite, Bedouin traders headed for Egypt. Keep your Bibles handy as you did last week because you know I'm given to flights of fancy and we're not going to have all of the, uh, the text. Some of the text is going to be on the screen for you, some of it's not, so you've got to pay attention. So pull out your phones and have your Bible ready. So diving into chapter 39... Uh, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Whatever, whatever Joseph thought about his dreams that he would rule over his brothers, he knows he's now a slave. To an Egyptian, of all things. He's fallen far from being honored as Jacob's favorite son and far from the land of promise. But we, what we see in verse 2 is, but the Lord, the Lord. That's a translation of the proper name, God's covenant name for is, with Israel was Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the only time that Yahweh is used in all of the, the Joseph story. And it comes at a very critical juncture in, in Joseph's, Joseph's life. Um, the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. And he became a successful guy. And not because he was part of a pyramid scheme, just because he was in Egypt. Pyramid schemes were rampant in Egypt. Okay. And he was in his Egyptian master's house, so he, he graduated quickly from whatever the shack uh, residences were to his master's house. Had the Lord been with Joseph while his brothers were throwing him in the pit? Had the Lord been with Joseph as he was sold into slavery? Yes and yes. God didn't just show up now. But now the narrator, the author Moses, wants us to, in, to, to, to recognize that this is what's going on, that God is with Joseph. We mistakenly talk as if God just shows up when bad circumstances change for the better. So things are messed up, they're going bad, and then things get better. And we say, ah, finally God showed up. It's not how it works. He's with us when things are bad. He's with us when things are good. And then in verses 3 and 4, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph's master could see the Lord is with him, and he sees that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed, to prosper in his hands. He sees that Joseph's success is from God, from Yahweh. So Joseph finds favor in his master's eyes and becomes his personal servant. His master appoints him over his house and puts him in charge of all that he had. 
he could see that he was trustworthy and competent because of his relationship with God. So as I read that, I think, can your neighbors see that God is with you? Can your coworkers see that God is with you? They may not interpret it that way, but, but can they at least see the evidence that you are trustworthy because you have God as your guide, your loyalty, your outside and inside uh, worker for good, that you are driven by God's goodness to you and his, his holiness? Can you be trusted that you are faithful because Jesus is with you and you are loyal to him? In verse 5, we see that from the time that Potiphar appointed Joseph over his house and over all that he had, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. And so, as, as he, God had covenanted with his great-grandfather Abraham, that through his family, through his lineage, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so this is a little bit of a download of that promise, blessing the house of Pharaoh's um, officer. And that certainly God wants to use us to bless those for whom we work, where we go to school, wherever we are, we carry the blessing of Christ with us. And it's something that we are delighted to share. So Potiphar entrusted all that he had. The word all is used quite a bit in here. And uh, so you who are business owners or managers or bosses of some sort, you know how valuable assistants are that you can leave in charge of keeping things running and not worry about things not being handled. They're very valuable to have that kind. So we've, we've got one of those in our office. We've got Alyssa. So there's no pressure, but you've got to live up to that now. The only thing he didn't have Joseph handle was his food. That's most likely because, as we'll see in chapter 43, it was an abomination to Egyptians to eat with Israelites. So they couldn't get over that. He couldn't even um, over, override the Egyptian food handler permit. So strict, so high. So the Lord is with Joseph. Potiphar can see God is with him. He's successful in everything he does because the Lord is with him. He has risen to become the overseer in charge of all Potiphar has. The Lord's blessing is on everything Potiphar has because of Joseph. Potiphar trusts him completely. What could possibly go wrong, right? What goes wrong is what the last part of verse 6 is, that Joseph is a looker. He's a hunk. He was handsome in form and appearance. He takes after his mother Rachel. The same words were used of his mother Rachel back a few chapters ago which is how it works in our family. <laughs> you know it. After Joseph, in verse 7, after Joseph had risen to prominence in Potiphar's house, his wife cast her eyes on him and says, Lie with me. Oh, come on. But Joseph refuses and says to her, With me here, my master doesn't worry about anything in his house. And he put everything he has in my charge. I think we have verse 9 on the screen here. Verse 9, He is not greater in this house than I am. He has not kept back anything from me except for yourself because you are his wife. Hello, Mrs. Potiphar. You're married. 
How can I do such great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is loyal to his master. He has deep convictions about his own integrity and trustworthiness. He upholds the sanctity of marriage. He knows that committing adultery would be a great wickedness. It's not just a cultural taboo. It's a sin against God. And God is with Joseph, blessing him, giving him success in all he does. So how could he sin against God? But we see in verse 10, she is relentless. She keeps appealing to him day after day. And he just keeps right on not listening. She, she doesn't get it and, and quit and say, Oh, what was I thinking, Joseph? You're so right on. I'm sorry. No, she just keeps on after him. Today we would call this what? Sexual harassment. Not only does he not commit an immorality with her, he won't even lie beside her or just be with her. He keeps wide boundaries with her. He doesn't allow himself to be coaxed into anything that would lead to becoming ensnared by her. He doesn't leave any room for temptation. He doesn't make any provision in in the the flesh for its lusts. Then, in verses 11 and 12, one day, as he is going about his normal duties, and, and none of the other men are in the house, she catches him by his garment, saying, lie with me. Now, the word catch means to grasp and to hold and to hang on to. It's used in some context to, to refer to like a resting Somebody? So she aggressively grabs him by the garment and isn't letting go so that his only way out of the situation that avoids being violent with her is to leave it in her hands and take off, get out of the house. Once again, Joseph's clothing is yet to be used against him. So his robe before, dipped in blood, deceived dad that he got killed by an animal, now his robe, his garment is being used against him. Again, Joseph is committed to not committing adultery. He might have rationalized that he has done good by hanging in there this long, long enough, fighting temptation. He might as well just give in. Or he might have felt he was so favored by God and his master that he had earned some special privilege, kind of above the law, God's law, as well as man's. But his commitment to the Lord... Purity into his master was rooted in his heart. You know, people excuse adultery and immorality, don't they? By saying, well, I I didn't plan to do it. It just happened. No, what happened was you didn't resist it long enough. At what point did it become okay? I can't assume that everyone here is convinced that God's good gift of sex is only for the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It's not a gift to be shared outside of that. You need to be deeply convinced of that if you're going to maintain purity or return to purity if if you've violated that. So we're going to have a quick mini-lesson in God's standard of sexuality, okay? Thank you. It's in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and there's more than that, but we're just going to look at verse 3. I wonder what God's will is concerning this. This is the will of God, 
your sanctification, your holiness, which is very much tied to abstaining from sexual immorality. That means any, any sexual expression outside of male-female marriage. In uh, another passage, it says flee immorality, flee porneia, that's the Greek word, flee it. And later on in, in this same chapter of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, he says, this, it's God's standard, it's not man's. You, if you violate it, you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. And then Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. How do you honor marriage? There's lots of ways to honor marriage, but very central to it is to keep the marriage bed pure and to keep sex just for marriage. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So I just have a few follow-up questions there. How are you doing in keeping from sexual immorality? How committed are you to faithfulness and sexual purity? Do you see the temptation coming and run the other way? Or do you just kind of play with it? Do you keep your way far from immorality? Or do you set yourself up for failure? Do you allow yourself to be in compromising situations with someone who is not your spouse? How are you doing in keeping from sexual immorality on the internet? It's so rampant. It's way too accessible. How do you manage your movie and TV viewing so that you don't consume immorality for entertainment and numb your heart to God and sexual purity and pure sexuality? It's not the main point of this story, but it's worth noting as we move on further in the story. So in verses 13 to 15... What's going on here is that she realizes that she has the garment and Joseph has fled and she quickly plots how to take advantage of the situation. In verse 14, she calls out to the the men who are working for her husband and says, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to mock us, to make fun of us, to humiliate us. Who's she talking about? Who's the he? Her husband. How does it sound like she's talking about her husband? I mean, what kind of attitude does she have? He brought in this Hebrew to mock us, to make fun of us, to humiliate us. She's saying that about her husband to his employees. So not a lot of respect going on in this marriage. And that shouldn't be surprising given her scandalous adultery. The world tries to separate sexual immorality from trustworthiness in other settings. It says, well, they may fail in that area, but they're really good at other things. Well, they may be good at some other skills, but they can't be trusted if they violate their covenant uh, relationship with their spouse. Now, if you're following in your Bibles, you've got to put on your lie detector, because listen to what she does with the story. Because marital unfaithfulness and sexual immorality go together with lying like flies and garbage. So she says... He came in to lie with me. Lie. She'd been pursuing him for days, and he was not 
the aggressor. And she says, I cried out with a loud voice, and when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Two lies. He left his garment in her hand, not beside her. So he, she, she tries to make it sound like he was disrobing in order to, uh, to rape. And he fled the house first. Then she thought up, I need to scream to make it sound like. So she said, I screamed, and he ran out. So she reversed the order. So she's really working hard to rearrange the details to make it appear that Joseph was the aggressor rather than she. So in verse 16, she's, she's careful to lay the garment by her until his, Joseph's master, comes home. And then she tells her husband the same factually altered story, only this time she makes sure she refers to Joseph as the Hebrew servant or the Hebrew slave who came in to her to mock her to put Joseph in the most despicable light possible. To be sexually attacked by a man is bad enough, but to be sexually attacked by a foreigner who's a slave is degrading. So that's her point in trying to... And she's reminding him that her husband, that, hey, the, the one that you brought here, he, he, he did this to me. So she concludes by claiming that after he attacked her, she screamed and, and he left his garment beside her and fled out of the house. So... In verses 19 and 20, um, when Joseph's master hears his, his wife's story of what Joseph supposedly did, his anger is kindled. I love the literalness of what it actually says in the Hebrew. It says, his nostrils got hot. Very visual. Hot nostrils. And Joseph's master puts him in a prison where the king's, uh, pharaoh's prisoners are, are confined at first glance, it seems that Potiphar is completely bought into his wife's story, doesn't it? Why, why shouldn't he? Why, why would she make up such a thing? But you would think that if Potiphar is certain Joseph tried to rape his wife, he'd have had Joseph executed. He'd have had him put to death, fully within his rights to do that. So you kind of wonder, I wonder if he doubted somewhat the story, because Joseph had been so faithful and their relationship probably wasn't very great if she's doing what she's doing and talking about him the way she's talking about him. And the narrator just says that he got angry. He didn't say he got angry at Joseph. So maybe he didn't fully buy the story, but who knows. So Joseph has gone from pit to prosperity to prison. He's done the right thing in spite of repeated solicitations to sin. How could God let this happen to Joseph after the injustice done to him by his brothers? How could God allow him to suffer injustice again when he had persevered in doing right under repeated temptations and had been so faithful? So the last three verses here. In verse 21, The Lord, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God had not abandoned Joseph. He was still with him. He was with Joseph as he prospered in Potiphar's house. He is with him as he's falsely accused and put in prison. Do we believe God is with us in adversity as well as in prosperity? We may acknowledge it with our heads, but when adversity strikes, we respond as if God has abandoned us. We need to keep reminding one another that God is with us if we are in Christ. God is always with us, always. The Lord showed Joseph steadfast love and gave him favor in the eyes of the warden, just as he had found favor with Potiphar. 
in verse 22, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. So just as Potiphar had put Joseph in charge of all he had, so now the prison warden put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. Imagine the trust the warden had to have in Joseph to put all the prisoners under his authority and and so that whatever was done, Joseph had oversight over. And then verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So again, just like with Potiphar, it had left everything under Joseph's charge and he had no concern with anything so the prison warden didn't have to pay attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why did the warden so trust Joseph? Not ultimately because of Joseph's good character qualities and work competencies, though he, was, he had high character and he was very competent in his work to be sure. But it was because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made successful. The takeaway from this part of Joseph's story is is not that God will always rescue us from every bad thing that happens to us in this life. It is not that God will always make us successful in terms of finances, health, safety, relationships, job promotion, favor with people, though he may and frequently does give these good gifts. The takeaway is that if you belong to God through the ultimate Joseph, which is Jesus, Jesus Christ, He is always with you, whether in good times or horrible times, prosperity or adversity. Are you in a season of prosperity, of good things going on? It's because of God, because he's with you. Are you in a prison of adversity and suffering? Know that he is with you. He is working in and through you for your good and his glory. Really, he really is. So for those of you who know, I'm in the prison of Parkinson's disease. And so I lay hold of this by raw faith that God is at work for good and for his glory. He could take it away at any time. He's chosen not to. And I trust him. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What we need to know is not only that God is with us in our adversity, but that he is for us. And so in Romans 8, 31, 32, if God is for us, and through Christ he is, who can be against us? What can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You think he would send his son to die and redeem you and not be willing to do whatever it takes for your good, ultimately, even if the things you go through are nasty and horrible and you'd love to, be, to jettison them at any time? He's with us. And you need to know that not only is he with us and he's for us, but he, he loves us. And we see that in Romans 8, 35. And, and with this we close. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor demonic powers nor things present nor things to come nor powers 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us in all that we go through. Thank you that we enjoy times of good gifts of food and friends and finances and health. Thank you that you don't abandon us when finances are tight, when we lose it all, when we lose our health, when people forsake us. You are with us. You are for us. You love us. Father, we, we talk about you loving us so much. We, we don't see how awesome that it is that we who deserve judgment because of Christ being not spared but given for us in his death and resurrection. He suffered the death we should have died so that we, we could have the life that only he could live. That is a tremendous love gift that we can never get over. And with that gift comes you. You are with us, Father. You are for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Thank you. Amen. Thank you.